This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on the journey with us. That's Jake, that's Ryan, that's Matt. Guys, we're digging into Nehemiah 7 today. And one quick note on Nehemiah 7 right from the beginning. There are certain parts of the Bible that are super easy to skip because it seems like nothing's there that as you're as you're going through it and you know maybe you've 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 you just got done with romans and it's like every sentence every verse of romans is just astonishing and like it's just such a big deal and then you get to certain parts of the bible and they just kind of seem like a slog if it seems like a slog maybe you should really think about what you're seeing there because there's probably a whole lot more there than, than what you recognize. So that's just kind of the, the, the basic beginning to Nehemiah 7. But again, from last week with Nehemiah 6, the wall is rebuilt. It's done, right? What they set out to do, what Nehemiah set out to do, when he risked his life by asking for you know, a leave of absence from King Artaxerxes' court as the cupbearer, it's done. And it wasn't without its opposition. And for a lot of us, and I think we mentioned this last week, we get to this thing where we've accomplished the goal and then we think we've arrived. And then we think there's, there's nothing else that, that needs to be done, but there's clearly more that needs to be done. So Jake, if you wouldn't mind, read verses one through three of Nehemiah seven, please. Sure. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut the bar, shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. And so the thing is, is right here from the beginning. The work's done, but the defense of the work is not. The, it is an ongoing project, not a project that is simply finished. And so I think that's an important thing here. And, and there's, there's a lot of context here that, you know, if it's interesting to you guys, you can get into it. But, you know, why they wanted to wait until the, the heat of the day to open up the gates, because typically it was opened very, very early in the morning. But as part of their defense of what they just got through doing, they wanted to adjust that. And again, Nehemiah being the consummate manager, the consummate politician, he was ready to go with gatekeepers, singers, Levites. And then he appointed a man, so basically he gave some of his power away to a God-fearing and faithful man to be the governor of the castle and in charge over Jerusalem. So there's so many just basic business and leadership lessons here, even just in the first part to where it's like, you've accomplished your goal, you were the main guy, and then the very first thing you did is you basically assigned a manager over something else, you assigned a captain, and uh, again, just in the first few verses, like that's a big deal, all this going on all at once. And then I did the worst job of setting anybody up because everyone just looked at me and went, not only is he ugly, not only is he a ginger, but also he makes terrible points. So uh, should I just, should I just leave you guys? Well, I think the delegation of these things and, and that, that Nehemiah does, like he obviously is, this is not for his glory or you could probably see some, I'm going to do all these things because I don't trust these people. Um, He trusts God for his promise but then he also trusts other people to help carry out what God has called him to do. And what a great lesson in leadership. And Nehemiah is just a, a book chock full of lessons in leadership. Um, I, I think that's a what, a humble, what a humble approach to say, I'm going to 
let these people do this thing. I'm going to assign other people these, these other things um, instead of going, I, I, want, I want the glory. I want to do it. You know what I found interesting was the first people he considers in terms of guarding the walls. Okay? He, he brings out the gatekeepers, singers, and the Levites. These are all worship officials. Okay? He's, not, he's not putting an army on the wall. It, it's, it's, not about, it's not about might. It's about worship. So the first thing that he comes up with in terms of how am I going to defend this city from future attack? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to put people in place to honor God. Mm. That's first. Yeah. I wonder as well, because I, I, I definitely didn't think about that, Jake. I wonder if that even attaches to what we saw in Nehemiah 6 to where it's like, okay, what did Tobiah and Sambala and Geshem, they, they tried to set him up as, oh, well, we heard through the grapevine that you wanted to make yourself a king. And so I wonder if that was even, if that was intentional, because if it's like, okay, if you fortify the city and then you basically have mercenaries or a standing army there, it's like, well, yeah, that kind of does lend credence to what those, those guys were saying. I wonder if that, that had a part of it as well. I think you're right. I mean, honestly, if you think about it, the first thing that you would do, I mean, they, when you talk about, I, I like what King, King George said about George Washington, it's like whenever he, if George Washington said that he was going to resign, you know, basically as commander in chief of the U.S. Army, whenever they finally defeated the British, King George said, if he does that, he'd be the greatest man in history. Okay. In this scenario with Nehemiah, you're going, if he had an army, he rebuilt this wall, he defends Jerusalem, he has an amazing stronghold. But if the first thing he was doing was, I'm putting an army on the wall to defend it, that's the thing I'm doing first. Absolutely. Artaxerxes would be kind of crazy not to think that, what is this guy doing down there? I'm a little skeptical of what his motivations are. I trusted that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I think it's important as well, it reminds me, so you mentioned George Washington, so Cincinnatus, so the, the Roman general that was brought in to basically up, uphold the Republic. And as soon as he had all the power in the most powerful uh, people group on the planet, he gave it away and just went back to his farm. And the thing is, is that is a very romantic story. It's mm-hmm. a story that has a lot of lessons to it. But what if Rome fell immediately? Mm. then we wouldn't be remembering Cincinnatus as this great moral <laughs> upstanding guy. would be like, Hey, you did part of the job, right? Like awesome. But we needed you like in the long term. I mean, I even reminded of my favorite movie gladiator. So when, uh, when, uh, Maximus that they, they've, they've won, they've defeated all of the, the rebels, they've defeated all these different people and he's ready to go home. And the, the emperor is like, well, I, I need you now more than ever. It's like you did everything you needed to do, but now Rome requires more service. And so it's like the job simply is not done. And, and that gets us really into verse five. Uh, Matt, can you read verse five, please? Of course. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and I found written in it. Dot, dot, dot. So the, the point here, because... Um, They've rebuilt the walls and that could be your Cincinnati moment to where it's like, all right, I'm going to go back and be cut bearer to King Artaxerxes, but the work is not done. That is an enormous first part of the project, but now it's time to rebuild the people. And so it's the, the purpose was to repopulate Jerusalem uh, now that the walls have been rebuilt and they want that the inhabitants to be, you know, of Jewish descent They you know, they want it to be of the covenant people. And, you know, we all just got through talking about this, so we'll, uh, off air. And so we'll kind of let you all behind, you know, behind the curtain a little bit. So I was nervous about recording Nehemiah 7 because in (laughs) contravention of what I said to start this episode, I was like, well, there's not really a lot here. And Jake, you kind of said the same thing. And Ryan, you kind of said the same thing. And then apparently there's one smart person at this table and he's sitting to my right. And that's Matthew Grassmeyer. Matthew Gregory Grassmeyer? No. No. Dang it. What's your middle name? Ross. Gregory's my brother. Oh, God. I'm an idiot. Don't let him listen to this. Ray. Ray. Sorry. My middle name is Ray. I just even said the wrong name. You messed up your own middle name. I thought it was Cincinnati. It's Gregory. (laughs) My brother's name is Gregory Ross. My name is my my middle name is Ray. Well, I don't feel as bad for ruining your middle name because you. That has never happened to Ray wow. Charles. <laughs> what, There's something no, about my the, grandfather's name was Ray. The time <laughs> warp of the forging table, it kind of helps. He does that. Uh, so again, I, I, or go ahead, Ryan. Before we get into that, 
because I know we're going to really extrapolate into this next. There was one thing I wanted to bring up in the last chapter or the last couple of verses. I think that we didn't recognize was um, Nehemiah's humbleness. How he humbled himself and he shared leadership with Hananiah and Hanai and brought them in as governor. I, I think that's a, that's a huge thing to look at. Like he knows the work still needs to be done, but then he also shares the leadership with two other guys. One guy who he says is more faithful and God fearing man than many. Like for him to recognize that, I mean, you're Nehemiah right now. You're like, (laughs) you're like, you know, I know God's doing all this. Like he's putting a lot of faith in, in God and, and what's going on here in the Jerusalem. And he even points out guys who are far more faithful than he is which is pretty amazing. Well, yeah. what were you saying before? Uh, because before we record, we typically kind of get a sense of where everybody's at, but you were saying something else about kind of even in these, these first few verses about like when, when Paul was talking about the armor of God and the, and the different things, because it's like, yeah, you need literal armor to defend yourself, but then there's also mm-hmm. some other things that, that need to be done. You need righteousness and you need truth. And I mean, we kind of saw that in the last chapter as well, where, you know, he put on the breast, uh, the belt of truth. Uh, in regards to the arrows that were being flung at him by um, Sanballat and uh, the other guys, Tobiah and Gresham. Um, <clears throat> but Geshem. then he also, Geshem. Geshem. Right. Geshem. I'm sorry. I, did, I, I just don't want Joby to get on me. I know. For getting Joby that Martin wrong. listens to all of yeah. these and he takes notes about all the things yeah. that He's we say about wrong. John Gresham? Mind your own yeah. business, Joby. Jermaine Gresham. Yeah. I'm like tied in hey, for the. For I, you I, now, whenever Joby's on your show, I listen to every word he says. <laughs> Like, like, I'm going to get him. Don't mess up, Joby Martin. I'm going to get you, Joby. No, um, Geshem. Um, but then you also look at, um, you know, the uh, we looked at the belt of truth. I have it pulled up right here, so I'll, I'll read it real quick. Um, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist in truth, which is what Nehemiah did. Belted his waist in truth and putting um, into stopping whatever the uh, Sam Ballot, Geshem, and Tobiah were trying to do and, and ruining his name. But then stand firm, therefore, having belted the waist of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I think that's what he did. He put on the breastplate of righteousness, and we're seeing that right now, and that he put his trust in God. He held to what God's law was and the righteousness of that. Then he's even pointing out the men who are righteous among him to help lead these people like you brought up the uh, Levites, the worshipers. And now we're, we're leading a ragtag group of people. I mean, it's like the little giants right here, you know, going up <laughs> against the Cowboys and, and, and he's like, you know, I can't do this on my own, you know? And so I just think it's, I think it's a beautiful picture of looking at Nehemiah's humbleness. It's just, I don't think I'd be that humble in this. There's situation. so there's so much symbolism here too. You look at, at David as he defeats Goliath, you have this massive army. Saul's got an army. They're all afraid. What does David has? David has the word of God. David has God on his side. I come to you in the name of God. And he kills Goliath. Like he wasn't, you know, an army of a thousand people. Now David was no, he wasn't some, you know, scrawny, weak little kid. Compared to Goliath, he was. But compared to Goliath, he sure was. Um, and I, there's just... God uses so many things so many times throughout history and throughout the word. Like I, you know, when you said that, I thought, man, David is a perfect example of that. He was worshiping God and God used him to deliver his people. Sorry to take us off track. I no, just no, that, that. that that's actually really good because again, it's, you're not going to get many commentaries. I would point something like that or draw that correlation, but there's even some stuff coming up in Nehemiah that I was just like, Oh, that, that relates to something like, really minute that's in the Psalms. And it just kind of gives credence to the fact that like this, this isn't, you know, the, the Bible isn't like a book as much as it is a library, a collection of stories that all tell one massive meta narrative about, you know, the gospel and the saving grace that we're offered. And so, uh, but Matt, I just want to kind of tee you up a little bit to talk about this because so if you read the first five verses of Nehemiah seven, you could then get into verse six and be like, oh boy, there's a bunch of names I can't pronounce. There's a bunch of numbers and this isn't supposed to be the book of numbers. So what exactly is happening here? And you can just buzz right through it and get all the way in and be like, okay, let's go ahead and get into, you know, eight, you know, where Ezra comes and this is going to be great. But you, you found this verse seven, you found a lot of weight in what we had, not in verse seven, but in chapter seven rather. Yeah, I think so. 
this list is essentially the same list that's used in, in Ezra. But <clears throat> couple, w- w- the first thing that really stuck out to me was, and I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it, and it goes through this list. And I think if we camp out here for a little bit, um, reading through these names, God reads these names. God knows these people. And if we take that to a, a personal application, God knows his people, and God called specific people back to Jerusalem. He's rebuilding a nation, not of random people. He's rebuilding his nation of specific people. These are all specific historical names that God is calling back. And so if we look at the, the way this plays out again, as God calls his people by name, he doesn't just say, you are my people. He knows us and he knows us from the foundation of the earth. And the Lamb's Book of Life was, was what came to mind. And it's mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation, but chapter 21, I'll, I'll just turn that open and read, read that, or chapter 20, sorry, right at the, right at the end of chapter 20. Um, it just goes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown down in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what an, what an amazing picture we have, even in the Old Testament, of God calling his people by their specific names. If you weren't on this list of genealogy, you weren't coming back to the city. You weren't part of the rebuilt nation. And I think it's such an important thing to think about. If you're written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you are covered and clothed in Christ's righteousness. And what a great and glorious thing to sit in. And so that, that's, that's what I took out of that. So I'd, I'd love to just talk through that a little bit with you guys on, on what, that, what that means. Because you can get, oh, this name, this name, this name. But your name's in there. If you are in Christ, your name is in there. Jake is written in there. And that's such a cool thing to think about. Where? Cool's probably, <laughs> probably the biggest understatement that I could use. but. Um, it's, it's a, it's a glorious thing. It's a, it's a great truth. Yeah. I think sometimes when you start getting into this, like when you start reading these lists of names in the Bible, because I struggle to, I mean, truthfully, I'm reading this last night as I'm trying to prepare and I'm like, well, all right, I'm going to just skip through I'll this. You know, where do they stop talking about different people? And I mean, I'm an accountant. So the numbers immediately started like getting interesting and I start getting my tin key out. And I'm like, does this all add up? Does this, (laughs) but at the same time, I mean, think about, I don't know, think about whenever you look at like your own family tree, you know, and how fascinated we can be by like, Oh, I was related to this person. You know, um, this is no different. I mean, you're reading your family tree right here. It all goes back. You know, you're going back to Abraham. You're going back to Noah. You're going back to Adam and Eve. Even this is, this is your own family tree right here. And it's kind of, it can be hard to think about that because we are so far removed from it. But, you know, when you start at creation, this is your own family. I think one thing to look at too is, you know, they're coming back. They were exiled. They were, they were scattered across the Babylonian empire when the first wave came through with um, Nebuchadnezzar. And, now they're coming back to Jerusalem, which was virtually empty with broken walls. So now they're coming back into what? A new, a new era, a new, would you say maybe a new covenant? Um, and so it's, it's, it's more of a beginning now rather than we look at this and we look at a past, like, Oh, look at all the genealogy. Let's look at the past. Cause that's what we know from Matthew, you know, but now if we look at these names and they're pretty important names cause they're in Ezra as well, that, they came back and they 
inhabited Jerusalem and they brought a future to Jerusalem. Like this is their future coming back. And, and I think that's one thing to look at when we're talking about the situation you were talking about, about the Lamb's book of life is that we're coming back to the righteousness of what God has planned for us. You know, we're all exiles in sin and because of Christ, we can be righteous in front of him. We can, we can be a new body. We can be a new life. I think also back to Isaiah when he's, you know, he's feeling alone and uh, God, I think it's Isaiah and God tells him, no, there's, there's a remnant. Hmm? Nehemiah is not alone. Nehemiah is not the only one. He gets these people together, but they're not alone. There's a remnant that God is calling. And I want to be part of the remnant. Like I want to, I want to, I want to run after that. I want to seek that. I want to be in the lamb's book of life. And God calls his remnant. Like you were saying, we're all exiled through sin, but God calls us back. And if you don't think the gospel is preached in the old Testament, I would encourage you to think about that because man, right here, like even in Nehemiah, which truthfully I had not really ever dug into. And then Kyle said it was his favorite book of the Bible. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. But I respect Kyle's opinion. I could see that. Okay. That's cool. And then our Sunday school teacher did a series, a Wednesday night series on it. And then as I started getting into this, man, that has turned into one of my favorite books too. And, and, and the gospel is, is preached very powerfully here. It's, it's built on leadership. It's just like, how can I be a leader? And when I look at myself as a father and I look at, look at myself as a person within the church with, you know, my friends, how can I lead them to the gospel? And like, how can I lead them to righteousness? And Nehemiah does that. And Nehemiah shows us his leadership is not from his own hand, but the leadership of God. Like he's lets God just take control. And I think that's something that's hard for us all to do is to let God take control. I think another interesting aspect here, these are all people in exile. Okay. No cell phones. How are they getting back? Okay. How is he finding these people? This is going to take a lot of effort, a lot of work. And, you know, I'm naming these people. These are the people who get to come back. I've got to get them. I've got to basically tell them, okay, here's who gets to stay. Here's who doesn't. And yet he just spent all this time rebuilding this wall from rubble. And at the end of that, he's like, you know, I think the natural human inclination here would be like, okay, I'm done. I rebuilt the wall. I'm good here. And yet you can see like in the very first line of uh, verse five here, then my God put it into my heart. He's still going back to God. He's done. (laughs) He's done with the wall. I mean, what he's done, most people would have talked about him for generations. And yet the first thing he's doing is I'm going back to God. I'm going to talk to him again. And then God's like, yep, I got more for you to do. You know, you got to go find these people. They got to go all come back to Jerusalem, they're going to get to stay here. They're the remnant. So with that, on the remnant point, I'm curious. Um, I think this is why you, were, why you were talking about it earlier, Jake, is I feel a connection to my ancestry, right? So Irish, Choctaw, Indian, like that, that's interesting. And, you know, maybe not interesting to y'all, but it's interesting to me because it's part of my story of who I am. But I feel like in modernity, even with all of our technology, all the genealogies, all the 23s and me's and all that kind of stuff, it's interesting, but not directive. Mm-hmm. And so mm. maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading too poetically into this, but when we get into this genealogy and kind of the point you were making, Matt, and taking it to revelation and just these, the importance of these lists at that time, your, your involvement, or I guess your, your membership in a people group, it wasn't interesting. It directed everything that you did. And because again, like, you know, we're in this modern moment where, you know, you get victim status by immutable characteristics that you can't control. And so it's like, why am I sitting here in Edmond, Oklahoma, and I have a Irish descent? Well, there was a enormous potato famine that almost killed everyone that lived on that tiny little island. But a lot of those people and my ancestors got out of there and came to America, were treated absolutely horrifically uh, during that process. But, you know, I don't feel a connection potato to potatoes now, like in, in, to where it's any different. But like when I went to Dublin and I saw the, the memorials 
there in some of the artwork that depicted the potato famine, it did feel different than somebody who doesn't have a connection there. And I can't explain it. When I hear, like when I heard the, the, the Celtic music and things over there, something was different that I couldn't quite explain. You'll see people that come from different parts of the world and the, the mood or the food or the music, it hits them a little bit different. But that's, I guess, something here for me is like, these people weren't just interested in where they came from. Like it, it, it basically gave them a, a plan of action for how they were going to move into the future. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that's just kind no, of something I think that that's hit me. A, I think that's a good point, but like these people, you have to think, okay, we have, we have conceded that we, are, we have been exiled. We've pulled out of our, the city of our fathers. I'm okay with that. I'm living with that. We are all, we are all in that. And you, you look at the Tower of Babel, God scatters his people. People are all over the world. But even if you don't have that connection to genealogy, we are all adopted into the family of, of God, into the fold that Paul talks about adoption in a very like legal way. God stands or Christ stands and says, I will take this person, like I will adopt this person into my family. And that's 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 the story I, I, I read here where all these people are okay. I'm here. I'm just going to be here. And then God says, no, 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 no. Come on back. Y'all are part of my family. And if you read these names, it can be very boring. These names are not boring to God. God reads these names and, 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 and is like, I love this person. I, the sons of era, like he reads those in a way he knows those people. And we can, we can, we can very quickly, oh, I'm going to go through this list and I want to just get through it because Eight's really where I want to be. God's not reading the list that way. God put it in here for a reason because it's important to God. Well, that that brings up an interesting point as well, and and don't lose the train of thought y'all are on either. But the whenever you go through a tragedy, right? So nine eleven, or uh, the Vietnam Memorial, or if there's a school shooting where there's you know a dozen or, or more victims, it's easy to just kind of like brr, just go right through and not even think about the list. Mm. But that's why at different points on, on my show, when we're talking about these horrible things that have happened, where I, I, I try to list those people, because that's not just a list of people that like, those are, those are people that were loved by entire communities of people. And so, yeah, they may just end up being a name on a memorial, but I mean, even recently, my, my cousin, uh, who was a police officer that was killed in the line of duty last year, you know, he was part of, you know, the you know, the celebration that they do every year in Washington, D.C., where they basically talk about, um, you know, officers that have been lost in that year. And his name is now in a memorial with other first responders that have died and different things like that. And it's really easy for people that don't know my cousin, didn't know my family to be like, oh, you know, that's a name and oh, that's so tragic. But it's like, no, the ramifications of that are going to ripple for decades and for generations. And like, that's that's not a small thing. And so that's another thing whenever you're reading through this. Yeah. If this is God's word, these names are here for a reason. Mm, yeah. And the reason may not be as profound to you as, you know, the last book of Matthew where it talks about the resurrection and, and how that's basically how we're able to have, you know, payment for our sins so we can be before a holy and just God. Maybe it's not going to hit the same, but it doesn't make it unimportant. It is important even if you don't understand why. I think one thing to look at is why are these, why did he choose these people? You know, I, and I'm not, I'm, I'm going into Romans 11. I'm going into Romans 11. So. <laughs> this is fantastic. Great. But great. I wonder what he's going to say next. <laughs> so, you know, he, he, Paul starts out. I say then God has not rejected his people. Has he far from it? For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah and how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's that's what I was thinking. Bail. I was I was, Bail. I, was Bail. I was wrong. Bail. Joby's, Bail. Joby's, Bail. Joby's Bail. You say tomato, I say tomato. Gordon Ramsay says basil instead of basil so he's also british yeah like I'm it's british. completely different they say they say aluminium so yeah. 
Um, Vitamins. So that's who I was. Elijah yeah. was who I was thinking of. So I, I'll, yeah. I'll correct my yeah. my error. Joby earlier. will get you. Yeah. Sorry, Joby. We love you, Joby. Um, I really do. We need to start making unhonest shirts that just say "Sorry, Joby" yeah. on it, like the, <laughs> the forging table. No, I, I think that's a good point. Like God, I mean, there's plenty of of examples in the Old Testament where I didn't choose you because you did anything awesome. Yeah, I chose you because I love you. Yeah, I, and is that not our relationship with our kids too? Like, I love you because I love you. You're like, you're mine. Like some days you're horrible. No, my kids got to do stuff or like my, yeah. my love is super conditional. It's got to be real. Honest. God's like, love can't. is unconditional. Yeah. He's better. As we see in Tulip. I think one of the but, things that <laughs> <laughs> I like your point there though, Matt, about, you know, who he's choosing and he's choosing them because he loves them, but they're, in the grand scheme of things, most of the people he's choosing in the Old Testament, you know, at the time of their choosing are generally unremarkable. Like and sometimes downright. I feel like terrible. that's why I'm chosen because yeah. I'm unremarkable. <laughs> but I agree. But the, but, the, but the point is, I mean, I think, again, talking through some discernment here, you know, powerful people invoking God all the time. I don't think that's who God chooses. He's going to choose the humble. He's going to choose those who seem relatively unremarkable to deliver those messages to you. I think a lot of times when people invoke God in order to get you to do something and they're in that position of power over you, sometimes you do need to have that little bit of a, I don't know. There should be some skepticism. There should be. Yeah. This is probably not who God would choose to necessarily deliver that message all the time. Now God is using that person. He just might be using that person in a way to judge the nations. There you as, go. As Romans 13 says. So, yeah, so some we have our own Nebuchadnezzar. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So with that in mind, Matt, I want to kind of get back to a point that, that you made whenever you were talking about this earlier, about how when a lot of people read the Bible, they don't see the gospel in the Old Testament. Um, I think part of it is that we don't have a full understanding of the, the Bible of the context. Cause again, we're, we're so inundated and marinated in this culture of bumper sticker Christianity or something even recently that I've been thinking about. It's like, um, what I was I calling it? It's like country music theology mm-hmm. to where it's like, we talk about the man upstairs and you know how I ain't too good at praying, but if I did, I'd do this. And it's just like, okay. And so it's where you can sound Christiany yeah. and not actually be saying anything. And it sounds good when you say like, oh, Jesus is my homeboy or man, the man upstairs is he's leading my steps and it's going to be all right. And, you know, I just feel his presence when I'm got my Evan rude and I'm out there on the pond and it's like, that's fine, but it's so vapid. It's just as vapid as going to a church that we've talked about that has just the Ted talk, you know, topical preaching. And again, there's, there's not a categorical problem with topical preaching. But if on top of that topic isn't the word of God, then we're, we're going to struggle and we're, we're, we're going to kind of deviate. So to talk a little bit more, because you just kind of dropped that in the bucket there about when people read through the Old Testament, when they read through Ezra or Nehemiah or First and Second Kings or whatever, they don't see the, the gospel there. Like it's easy to see it, you know, in parts of Isaiah to where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, he was crushed for our iniquities and it's like he was, his body was pierced. Yeah. It's like, oh God, that's Jesus yeah. right there. But it's not as obvious everywhere else. So the if if you think of of the gospel and salvation more in terms of deliverance we are delivered from our sins and our iniquities i think that's a good place to start because then you like all throughout the old testament god's people are delivered and they are there is salvation all throughout and the old testament is is quoted so often, in fact, I think in Revelation, it's like almost two thirds of Revelation is quoting Old Testament um, prophecy and or Old Testament scripture. And the gospel, like the gospel, starts in Genesis three, and you know, Noah, the ark is the gospel. There's only one door to the ark. Jesus is the ark. Like there's only one way in, and the water's coming. But if you're in that boat. You're good. The, the, the boat is the Lamb's book of life. <laughs> if, you, if you start to, Joseph is a Christ figure. Nehemiah is a Christ figure. Now, none of them live up to Christ's like, 
godliness and yeah. he, they're, none of them are perfect, but they are, our, our Sunday school teacher says they are, they are a dress rehearsal to the coming Christ who will deliver all of his people. And I would encourage anybody who, who doubts that to just go read some of, go read the New Testament, but then go read some of these stories and you can easily see some of these things. Oh, okay. Noah, Moses, <laughs> Joseph, Nehemiah, all of these, all of these people are pointing to Christ and the whole, the whole Bible points to Christ. I feel like and, the yeah. Old Testament just brings the beautifulness of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Like you can't have, you can have the gospel. People are going to hear the gospel without knowing the Testament, but you're not going to appreciate it as much as unless you look at the Old Testament. And I think that's one thing that will, you know, not to get on to what we're going to talk about in Nehemiah, but there's going to be a certain point in, ne- a point in Nehemiah where people are going to look at the beauty of what the Old Testament is. And then it's going to show them who they are. Mm-hmm. And then from that, they know that they're in need of a, of a righteous figure, a righteous savior. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's, that's the beauty of the Old Testament. I mean, it's just, I, I thought I was, I was on the whole, you know, Andy Stanley thing, like we don't need the Old Testament back when I was a cultural Christian, you know, we just need the New Testament. And now I'm like, man, I totally missed the gospel and what it really was when I didn't take, when I took for granted what the Old Testament was, because I was like, why did, why did Christ die for me? I'm a good person. Pastor just told me last Sunday, you know? And so I think something that's interesting in here, I mean, most of the old, I mean, much of the Old Testament is basically a story of the Israelites wanting their Messiah, wanting that Savior, wanting the, I mean, if you actually, if you think about it, I mean, even in, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah typically in history were actually one book at one point and they've been separated, but you have a prophet and you have a king. You have the story of a prophet and the story of a king. When you have David, you have David. He's a king, but he has his own prophet that was with Samuel, who was bringing him to, uh, who's kind of anointing him. They're generally not in one person. You'll notice there's always this separation between a prophet and a king. And a priest. There you go. Uh, I'm sorry, not prophet, priest. Thank you. No, prophet, priest, and king. That's it. But where do they all come together? And they finally all come together in the New Testament, in the faith, in, in, in Christ Jesus. Who is our Savior. Prophet, priest, and king and is our Savior. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's a great point. So I, there's, it's actually, there's only one other, and I'll, I'll deep dive a little bit, but Mekilzadek is actually the only other prophet, priest. And he was the only other person that got priest of Israel and king of Israel. But he's mentioned like four times in the Bible. He was who Abraham tithed to. But at the same time, he was not even the Messiah. It was Jesus who yeah. came back. But Jesus came from, or what, what, what is the... He came from that does, line. Does he, yeah, does Hebrews talk about that? I think yes, Jesus is. The came line from of the David. line of Mechizedek. Uh, yeah, whatever. I, mm-hmm. Sorry, Joby. <laughs> Look, I, could, I, I did a Bible study over Hebrew. I led up, the first Bible study I ever led was over Hebrews. And, Ooh. and, oh yeah. And I got the, wow. I got the McKeel's deck heavy chapter. <laughs> I told my wife, I was like, I never thought that whenever I was going to start studying the Bible, that I was going to have to start working on my, my Hebrew pronunciations. This was yeah. not something I was expecting. Yeah. Well, let me, so that brings up some to mind. Like all of us, I think are fans of Alistair Begg on oh, this yeah. podcast. And of oh, course yeah. you've got the, just one of the greatest moments of any sermon that I've ever heard where it's, you know, basically when he said the man on the middle cross said I could come. And, you know, if you haven't heard that part, like literally just search Alistair Begg, the man on the middle cross, and you can listen to the entire sermon. But even that snippet has basically gone viral and been everywhere. But one thing I'm trying to remember, and I'll, I'll bastardize it just a little bit on, unfortunately, but he was just, you know, he's basically saying, you know, the, the, one of the guys that was being crucified next to Jesus, you know, gets up there and he gets to the pearly gates as we're, you know, 
taught colloquially in culture. And, you know, he's talking to the, uh, the people trying to, he's trying to get into heaven and the angels. he's, yeah, the, <laughs> the angels. Thank you. Sorry, Joey. But like, <laughs> but the, so he's talking, he's talking to him and it's like, okay, how are we going to let him in? And then they asked him, I was like, well, what, what is your, what is your doctrine of faith? And do you understand, uh, the, the thing about total depravity? Like he's asking him justification. He's asking him these very specific theological terms, these things that you learn in Bible college or at seminary. And the, the, he basically describes it like, you know, the, the thief on the cross was just basically like, I don't know anything about all that stuff. And you're reminded about, you know, when these people were healed by Jesus in the new Testament and then they go off to tell about him and people are asking him like, well, how did he do this? And what, what was the thing? And does he know the laws and does he all that? And these people are like, I don't know what you just said, but all I know is I was blind. I can see now. Mm-hmm. All I know is I was paralyzed. My legs didn't work. And now I'm running around like with my mat over my shoulder. And so, I, I wonder, and that, that's kind of where my struggle in this maybe goes back to a point we've talked about earlier on the show where it's like, you can't just read the Bible, you have to study the Bible. Is it, I want to be fair with my question here, is it inappropriate for a new Christian to just stay in that naive, where the only thing they understand about anything in the Bible is that Jesus died for them and they know that's their only way to God and they're going to put their faith in that and then they're going to live there. Or in what is, what does the process look like from there to where it's like, okay, but, but now we, we do need you to understand things further. Cause some people would say, Hey, it's not bad that you're figuring out whether you're an amillennial millennial or a dispensationalist or a cessationist or that that's all fine, but you're, you're muddying the waters. Like you're becoming smarter in the word and you're, you're learning all these big words that no one else knows how to pronounce but it doesn't matter. The gospel is all that matters. Cause that's where people that are big Andy Stanley people are like, his point is true. Like we need the resurrection. That is the center point of the faith. Categorically he's correct, but is. how do we even know that? How do we even know to even look for a savior without the old Testament? So that, that is a very convoluted question, but I feel like no, y'all are, uh, I, yeah, everyone had a point. So I, yes, I great. I, I think I actually, nice question. I, I'll go this. I actually look at it in two thoughts here. I think number one, A, that is all you need. I mean, that's a childlike faith. I mean, that's what you're supposed to have. Um, I don't really think that there's any problem with having this. Well, this, the new, you know, the new Testament, the new covenant, that's, that's all I actually need. And, but to the going, even drawing it back into Nehemiah, we built the wall, right? I have that wall. I know what I want. Now it's time to defend it. And I think not having the knowledge of scripture, not having the knowledge of the word is, I mean, that is how you guard your heart. So those temptations, those things that are going to come to you over time, if you don't spend time in the word and try and deepen your understanding, it becomes harder to keep on that walk with Christ. However, in the grand scheme of things, yes, it's all you need. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, if you look at the old Testament, you know, people are saved by faith alone. I mean, even the new Testament's faith alone. I mean, David's going to be in heaven. There was no Christ, but Abraham's in heaven. Yeah. Abraham's in heaven. Moses is in heaven. Um, but you bring up Andy Stanley and Andy Stanley. Yeah. He may have the right message that the resurrection is needed, but what is he doing to disciple his church? How is he discipling those people that come to know Christ and, and, and are building that relationship? Because what we've seen in the past is he's not discipling them very well, not biblically, you know? Um, and so I think it's, it's twofold. It's, you need to have that, but then you need to get yourself involved in the church and have that yearning for, you know, God's word. Um, and it could take time. I mean, I, I could say I was saved when I was 12 years old. I didn't have a yearning for God's word until I was 32. You know, what do we call that? Delayed sanctification. Yeah, that's what I was talking about <laughs> yeah. with, with John Cooper. Like, yeah. where, where yeah. where's that yeah. gap come from and is the, that appropriate? There's a gap because like I knew I became saved. I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I knew right and wrong. I still lived in the flesh. I mean, my yeah. wife and I lived together before we were married. You know, I thought that was a great idea. Is it biblical? No. Was I at a church that called me out, you know, and said, hey, man, if you're going to be a member here, you know, this is the biblical view of marriage and cohabitation. No, they didn't want to touch that. Why? Because it was a seeker sensitive church. They wanted, they wanted me to keep coming and keep tithing and just prop the numbers. And so that's where it comes out when you're a Christian and you're building yourselves up. You need to surround yourself with the right people, with the, with the people that are going to help mold you 
and get you into the Bible and into God's word. Because if I would have had that early on in life, maybe my sanctification would have been delayed. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point. The point I would make is the Christian faith is certainly more than that, but it's absolutely not less than that. Right. And in that same sermon, Alistair Begg says, because he starts that sermon, he's in a church who you walk into a church, you can make some assumptions. There's okay. some saved people here. They're, these are Christian people. But he says at the beginning, the power of the message of the cross and I should say at the very outset, especially if somebody says, why choose such a topic for this evening? Is it really necessary to come to an event like this, to a place like this, and address the matter of the centrality of the cross? Well, I should say that I have not arrived here to tell you something that you do not know, but rather that we would remind each other of that which we must never forget. And that's, that's one of my favorite sermons for sure, but like the gospel is something that we should be preaching to ourselves constantly. And we can get into all the, the doctrines and all of the theo- theological discussions we want. But to your point, yes, it is, it is. We should be so dogmatic about that, that we're preaching ourselves the gospel constantly. When you were talking, I was reminded of what some would call the greatest sentence ever penned. Um, um, Ephesians 1, chapter 3 through 14. And this is wordy, but I'm going to read this because this is the gospel. Blessed be the God and uh, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fulfillness or for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is the gospel. God foreknew us. He, he predestined us to be his children. He, th- I mean, th- like, true. Not, I'm not trying to yeah, get into some theological debates yeah. here, but God knew us from the foundation of the earth. He created us. Christ atoned for our sin. And then the Holy spirit sealed us with the promise. Like, man, you talk about, going to church for an experience in an emotional high, if you don't get revved up by listening to that and what, what, what the triune God has done for each and every one of us. Yeah. And I don't know what to tell you because that's, that's pretty powerful stuff right there. So I wonder with that. So here's, here's a struggle that I have that I feel like is related to what you just read and the point that we've been making for the last 45 minutes or so. Um, I think all of us would categorically agree that, we need to have the Bible or have the gospel preached to us. We need to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, that that should be a constant companion to the content we take in, in our internal dialogue and all that. Would everybody agree with that? hundred percent. Three 100%. checks, three yep. checks. Here's my struggle. And I'm not about to contradict what I just said, but you go to a church, regardless of the type of church that it is, uh, whether it's, you know, a highly emotional church or even just a regular church, uh, that's, you know, just a little bit more subdued. Someone declares their faith in Christ. They get baptized. They, they do any of those types of things. And then this is what we get. Hmm. Kind of like an obligatory clap. Um, and it's not even fathomable or even comparable to the same people that go to a stadium on a Saturday in the fall and their favorite college team with 18, 19, and 20-year-old boys scores a touchdown and the elation and craziness that they feel 
or even we were talking about EPL before this, you know, you're a Tottenham fan, which you don't normally get to cheer for anything if you're a Tottenham <laughs> fan. But maybe Facts. you're you're a fan of a team that wins games. And <laughs> so it's like when when your team scores oh, a goal, yeah. you lose your mind. Yeah. When your team wins the World Series, you lose your mind. And but when somebody has their name written in the land's book of life and there's an acknowledgement of that, it's just like, well, isn't that nice? Well, bless her heart. Isn't that the sweetest thing in the world? And I I have struggled with that. And I, I understand it because, you know, ultimately us as humans, we're all about the bread and circus. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we love that, but we're distracted from the greater things. And again, I'm not hovering above my commentary because I have screamed myself hoarse, positive and negative at a ball game, right. but I've never lost my mind and ripped my shirt off because somebody declared their faith in Christ. Where? Like, and I don't just want to default and be like, oh, that's Satan. And it's just like, but, but like, <laughs> there's something, there's, there's a sickness there inside the church and inside the hearts of believers. And I just, I don't know how, how to deal with that. Cause there are churches that do a great job of celebrating. I know we're giving Joby a hard time, but they do, they do yeah. beach baptism and it, it is a party. And they are yeah. like, when, and they're baptizing hundreds of people at a time right there in the ocean. And it is like, it is a full on thing. And like, I feel like they're doing it right, but like, that is certainly the minority. I mean, I was raised in a church, you know, I was raised in the Catholic faith. We're baptized right, as, as, dot, as dot, an dot, infant. Dot. Yeah. Right. And I think that, you know, when you start talking about like a lot of faith has actually kind of been, you know, spun off of that Catholic faith a, a little bit. I mean, it's all just kind of outflow from it. Baptism has become a bit of a box checking activity, you know, where, well, that's just what you're supposed to do. I don't think that people quite understand the ramifications of being saved and, you know, making that declaration of like, nope, I've been washed new. I'm coming out of this water as a new person. What is the actual ramifications of that? You know, it's, it, it does seem soft when we go into the church and we actually see that happening and it's just like, oh, yay. Okay. They checked the box. My wife weeps every time she watches baptism Sunday at our church. Every time she weeps. And what's ridiculous, a little convicting on myself here, I actually give her a hard time for it. And I'm going, you know, it's like, you don't know these people. But she, she truly understands the ramifications of this. What does this mean? Yeah. So what? Yeah. yeah. Steve Lawson says there should always be a so what in your sermon. Yeah. Like, yeah. okay, that's great. So what? Paul, Paul uses therefore, therefore yeah. be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's also Ephesians chapter five. Yeah. So what? Yeah. What do we do? Then, then, then what? I yeah. would love to, I'd love to see a party of baptism. You know, yeah. my son was baptized, um, just this, uh, this year of February and like, yeah, I teared up, you know, shoot, guy was right my leg. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's a beautiful sight, you know, and that's just my child. So seeing other children go up there and get baptized, it's beautiful. You know, um, I, I, I feel like it loses its, its effect because baptism isn't the saving grace, you know, it's belief and repentance. It's a saving grace. I mean, I was probably more excited when my son actually came to that conclusion than I was when he was dipped in water, but still a beautiful thing. My wife and I have decided, unfortunately, our son got well, fortunately, he got baptized on his birthday, but if they get baptized, it's a day that's not their birthday. That's going to be like a birthday party for us and our yeah. family. Like that's something we're going to celebrate. Um, and, and I get the reverence of church. I mean, church is about God. Um, it's a beautiful thing. I, our church claps and everything, but I love what Joby does. I think it's awesome that they throw a party and people are getting baptized and it's just, it's just a way to, you know, just celebrate the beautifulness of somebody coming and saying in, in front of everybody, I am a believer in Christ. And it's the most important team that you can de declare your allegiance to. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the other thing, if you think about it, you know, uh, Ryan, to your point, like, yes, I could see like when my daughters decide to make that step and, and say, I'm declaring this and, and they tell me that they've declared that I'm going to go that, I mean, I'm going to be so excited and so emphatically like encouraging with them. However, at the same time, all those kids that go through and get baptized, the adults that go through baptism, I don't know them. And this is the first time they're declaring it to me. 
Like this is the step I've decided to take. And I'm sorry, but shame on us as Christians that the first time that they declare this to a whole lot of other Christians, that we are not hollering and wooing and, and doing all those things we would do at a sports game because this is their first step out into public as I am now a follower of Jesus. We should be psychotically encouraging to them in those very first moments. And we're yeah. not. And yet we we're can so even, subdued. We can even look at this as a pragmatic business stance. This is a sale, right? I'm not, I'm, don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> Accepting the gospel is not a sale. But if you look at the sales cycle for customers, the sale is made. That customer is either going to leave or stay with that company. And I don't care where you're at. If there's not a win for that customer, if there's not a celebration, if there's not a movement, a calling to get something out of that sale, they're going to leave. So there are whole industries. It's a billion dollar industry to keep customers. And it's the first 90 days you need to win. And here we are, like you said, golf clap, cool, good for you, um, wins lunch. And when that guy's wall has just been built up and now he is at risk or she is at risk of these guys hiring false prophets to tell him untruths, we should be surrounding that person in love and saying, yes, this is awesome. We are so glad you're here. This is amazing. And we should be celebrating that and encouraging that. But yeah, I, I think we, we definitely have fallen short in a lot of ways. Well, Not think, everybody does, but well, yeah. But, but think about who's paying attention. So you, you see this different places and it's typically funny. So you'll see like a three-year-old that's watching a game and then they see their dad like freak out or put his head in his hands or something like that. And then they look at dad and then they do it. And then it's, it's kind of cute and it's kind of funny because they're, they're modeling, right? They're modeling their behavior after, you know, someone that they respect or just someone that's bigger than them, a bigger chimp, if that's your worldview. But modeling shared excitement Imagine what would happen because I have a three-year-old and one-year-old. If they saw me get out, off, like out of my mind over my skis, excited about somebody declaring their faith in Jesus, and the difference that that would have in them and their development, then dad freaking out watching a St. Louis Cardinals game or something like that, because that's something that you know back in my twenties, like the number of nights that I ruined. I talk about this every year whenever I do my ways to be avoid being a crappy man that year. It's to not let sports ruin your night. And I remember my, my wife at the time, we're, we're six, seven years before having kids. And she's still, like, still, his wife. still his wife. Still yeah. His he wife. said we wife should, at the we time. We should clarify oh, yeah. that. She, they are still married. <laughs> Sorry, Joby. We're still, we're still, we're still super duper married. Okay. Same woman. But at the time, my wife, who is still my wife said, I can't imagine having children with someone like that. Someone mm. like you, like what you're doing right now. Like this is a baseball game in May. <laughs> and like you're early in the season, like you're, you're losing your mind. You're My going, Cubs are typically out of it by then. Right. So I'm, <laughs> but like you're, you're going, you're this going to true. work, you're going to work and it's hard for you to talk to people because you're mad uh, that, that the closer blew the save with like a, in, with, a, with a thousand games to go in the season. Right. Yeah. But even if it was game seven of the world series, yeah. it's like, this is how like, I remember going to a world series game. It was game two of uh, the 2011 world series and the Cardinals lost. I ended up winning the world series. But at the time I'm like staying with friends like near St. Louis. And like, I couldn't even talk when I got back to their house. And here's this family that have opened up their, their home to my wife and I uh, to, to stay there overnight. And I, I couldn't talk. I woke up the next morning. I could barely talk. Cause I was so mad. I was so mad that my team, my team lost a game. They were winning. Right. But it's like, it just showed where I was worshiping and what yeah. altar I was mm. worshiping at. And if I had sons that were watching that and surely my sons have already seen, you know, bad parts of dad's personality and things that dad's going to have to repent and ask their forgiveness for. But that, is, that should just be a lesson as we wrap up here to, to all you guys out there that have kids, whether it's sports, which is kind of the easy one, or maybe, you know, you worship at the altar of hunting or you worship at the altar of how many times you get to golf that week or whatever your, your activity is, jujitsu, shooting range, whatever. What, your kids are watching where you find excitement and where you find joy and where you find fulfillment. Or are you putting your time? I think right. Dustin Binge says it this way, and I'm, he, he may not even be the one that originated this, but less than 1% of kids will be a professional athlete. 100% of your kids will, will stand in judgment before a holy God. That's true. Where are you Powerful. putting your time? 
And so guys show some, some level of attachment, some level of excitement to the things of the gospel and continue to preach it to yourself and have it preached over you. But, uh, so if there's a lesson there, like there's seemingly not a lot to Nehemiah seven and yet we filled up an hour with a, a lot of great discussion, but we'll have to leave it there. But guys come back next Sunday where we'll dig into Nehemiah eight. So make sure that you read that. So you're prepared for next week. And before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at undaunted life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So we've got our donation link there, guys. That is how we're able to put out the content that we put out. So if you like things like the forging table, if you want to see additional things brought to the fore for guys, just like you, we need you to hop on board and be one of our monthly donors. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self titled debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah